Folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 563 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, December 3rd, 2010, close to Christmas, and definitely all the way to the end of the week. That means some of you guys will be listening to me at work and then getting to drive home for the weekend and spend time with the family. Great time of year to be doing that. We're actually having an early Christmas party for the whole family this weekend so that nobody has to fight about Christmas Day and where people go and other Halloween par- or ha- Halloween parties, Christmas parties and things like that. You'll see why Halloween was on my mind here in just a second. Anyway, uh, it's going to be a great show today because it's your day. It's the day that you guys call in, leave messages. You do that by dialing 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Leave your message. You get two minutes to do that, not three Not two and a half, but two or less. You have to be concise, direct, to the point, make your point, or drop your question. We'll try to get you on the air. Before we get your calls on the air today, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors, and both of them I have announcements for. Uh, BulkAmmo.com, kind of a new sponsor, been around about a month now. Really glad to have them on board. Immediately stepped up, supported the MSB. If you're in the MSB and you buy more than $200 worth of ammo for, from them, you get a free ammo can. So I think that's, uh, that's pretty awesome in and of itself. Uh, but, you know, they also stepped up and put together a contest. That ran until the 30th of November. They did announce the uh, winners last week. Uh, Maryland, who posted about them on Facebook, won the grand prize. 500 rounds of ammo of her choice in a can. And even though they only said they were going to do one, because there were so many of you guys that participated, they did a second prize. So a guy named Brian from Illinois ended up getting 250 rounds of his choice, which was 9mm. So they've uh, they've really hooked up the audience. Uh, so check out BulkAmmo.com. Great deals. You want to know what to get the prepper in your life? Buy them bullets. Trust me, ladies. You buy your husband a bunch of ammo in a caliber that he shoots a lot, you've scored a home run. It may not seem like a great Christmas gift to some people, But trust me, if you give me a thousand rounds of two, two, three, I'm a happy camper. Uh, next up today, the Berkey guy. Berkey guy's running a contest until December 15th. Please help, uh, please go ahead and, and enter it. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Here's what the Berkey guys give it away to you guys. Um, it, this is pretty awesome. He's going to give one person a Royal Berkey which is a really awesome one, one person a big Berkey, one person a uh, emergency seed bank, and one person a wise food storage uh, um, bucket, which has got uh, like you know a bunch of uh, food rations in it. So uh, that's a pretty big deal. And Berkey, you know, I mean, if you're going to buy a water filtration system uh, for your home, not to run around the woods with, but for your home, Berkey's what I'm going to recommend every single time. Not just because the Berkey guy is a, uh, a sponsor, but because I've researched everything that was available to me. And Berkey's not the cheapest thing to buy out of the box, but over the time that you use it, it's the most affordable way I know of to really purify your water the right way. Uh, it comes out to you know fractions of pennies uh, per bottle of water. So check out the Berkey system. Jeff's also an awesome guy. I just learned yesterday when I was interviewing a guy named Brandon 
who has been on several relief efforts to Haiti. And I'm bringing him on Monday. You're going to hear Brandon and tell you what's gone on in Haiti and what it's really like when the shit really hits the fan. Well, Jeff, I'm not going to tell you what he did, but I'm going to tell you that he did some stuff to help out. And I'll let Brandon drop that on you on Monday. But make sure you tune in Monday for that. But Jeff's a great guy, guys. So he's a great guy to support. If you're going to buy a Bergy system, please buy it from him. All right. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You get a whole bunch of discounts. And I'm just going to say today, all of you folks that are in the Members Brigade, whenever you're going to buy something, ever, you know, anything that's you know remotely related to the podcast, log into your uh, back office. Look at the people that offer discounts and see if any of them offer a discount. Because you using those discounts will keep them supporting the brigade, and you should save money and get an advantage of, of supporting the show financially. There's about 25 of them now. So odds are, if you're going to buy anything for, from anything from your garden uh, to your food storage and anything in between, there's probably somebody back there that sells it and will offer you some type of a discount. That's one of the big member uh, be members brigade benefits. Last, last but not least, remember, we are in it for podcast of the year in the general category. I need your help. You have to vote once a day, not just once and none. This is not like a general election. This is a popularity contest here. I'd like to win this thing. It'll get us great mainstream exposure. Uh, you do that by going to podcastawards.com, looking in the general ca category, ticking the radio button next to our name. You can vote for any other categories you want, but you don't have to. Name and email. Once you vote, you do have to confirm your vote. There's a link in today's show notes and there is also a place where you can get a reminder service from me where once a day you'll get an email saying hey go vote and uh, with a link so you might want to use that reminder service that'll make sure you don't forget with that let's go ahead and take first call today and uh, it's kind of just a little funny one and you'll see why I was thinking about Halloween hey Jack uh, Jason from Pennsylvania here this is just a total little fun bit nothing serious but uh The other day, my daughter seems to have confused your show with Halloween, so you are now officially Jack Scarecrow. Not Scarecrow, but Jack Scarecrow. Just thought, you know, for a little laugh, um, but she's listening to the show at three years old. Hopefully, uh, I'll be able to teach her not to make the mistakes her daddy's made, and she'll uh, be able to be a little bit more self-sufficient, a little bit more debt-free, and have a better and richer life than I did. So... Here's that. Well, that is kind of cool, and uh, Jack Jack Scarecrow, huh? Well, I've been I've been called a heck of a lot uh, more confused by my name than that. Spiro, Spit to Spitz, Sparrow, Sparky, you name it. If you can make something out of a name with an S in it, it's been done. So uh, being called Jack Scarecrow by a little girl, that's actually kind of cool. I kind of like that. Also, some of you guys might be out there that have kids, and you don't let the kids listen to the shows, or you screen them because occasionally I use a four-letter word uh, and think that three years old listen to the show, and Jack might you know drop the S word or something from time to time. You know, um, I, I get emails still about that, and I don't rant on it anymore because I figure I've said it enough. You guys know where I come from. But I'll tell you what, um, my wife said to me when she we were talking about this the other day. She goes, "I bet a lot of those parents are letting their kids watch shows like Two and a Half Men." And they might not use certain words, but they're a heck of a lot worse than your show. So, folks, if you do have kids, you know, you may want to listen in advance. Some of those things I talk about are kind of scary for really little kids. But, um, you know, I don't think it really hurts little kids to hear this stuff and hear somebody that maybe occasionally uses an adult word or two. You can tell them, hey, you know what, Jack says that, and we listen to Jack, and he makes a lot of great points. We don't use those words. 
not in our house. I mean, there's there's plenty of ways to do that. But I do think getting kids to listen is probably cool. And if they want to call me Jack Scarecrow, if they want to call me whatever, as long as, okay, Uncle Jack or whatever, as long as they, uh, <clears throat> they're taking away those lessons like staying out of debt um, and uh, being self-reliant, independent, and working hard and all that good stuff, man, that's a, that's a big honor. So, uh, sir, you tell your little girl that right from Jack Scarecrow, thank you. I appreciate her listening, and I appreciate her uh, learning some of those lessons maybe her daddy didn't learn. Let's go ahead and take uh, the next question. Hey, Jack, I'm calling in response to your uh, uh, episode 550. I just want to say that I had found a TSP after my wife had bought me an iPhone about a year and a half ago, and I come across this in iTunes. I had a preparedness instilled in me in the Boy Scouts when I was very young and kind of wandered away from it but got back to it after I got a family. I always had the awareness, you know, embedded in me, but not so much lately. Uh, I found the podcast, and it's really instilled a lot of new ways that I want to live. Um, our preps are, are coming along. We have six months' food saved. Um, this year we started a garden with all raised beds. I'm building a greenhouse now, and we're trying to pull my culture. I've been raising bees for two years, saving seeds. We started a seed swap this year. Everybody has bug-out bags, and we've been doing rifle training and other stuff that we, we like shooting and stuff anyway. But I want to uh, thank you for the time and the effort you've been putting into this, and you're willing to educate the rest of us, and we appreciate it, and good luck in the future. Thanks. Well, the reason you're hearing that is as I've been screening calls for these calling shows. I've found two things out. One, there's a small handful of people that called in for the 550 show that somehow got filtered improperly and ended up in the general voicemail boxes and um, didn't get on the show. That's this guy. And then there's a pretty good chunk of folks that called in after I stopped taking those calls for 550. I had to cut it off the day before so I could piece the show together. And I just found a big clump of those that called in like the day of the show or the day after the show. And I'm going to slowly allow them to come on the air one or two at a time, just probably one at a time, until I get them on. Because I want everybody to be heard. I want people to hear what they're doing, but I don't want to do a mini version of 550 or anything and put too many of them together on one show. It's something we're going to do occasionally, maybe once a year. Um, but what I wanted to say about this guy is, look, this is just taking simple steps, taking simple action doing simple things, it all sounds really big until you start taking these things like eating an elephant one bite at a time. Well, if we do that long enough, next thing we know, we're looking at the skeleton of an elephant. So uh, thanks for calling in. Sorry I didn't get you on 550, but uh, again, slowly over time, I'm going to try to get all the folks that uh, that I missed, because it certainly wasn't intentional, uh, on the air for, uh, you know, for their two minutes of what's going on. Because I think it's important that we hear that. And honestly, sprinkling them throughout the year is probably a really good way to do them instead of always throwing them into one big giant show. So let's go ahead and take another call. Thank you for calling in, sir. Sorry I didn't get you on 550. Hey, Jack. It's uh, Jonas from Toledo, Ohio. I was wondering what your thoughts were on using metals other than lead for casting bullets for reloading, like uh, copper, brass. I'm sure there's some kind of legality, but just want to know what your thoughts were. Thanks. Um. Well, there's, I don't know of any legal issues that you have to worry about other than if you made up some, you know, silver bullet or something like that, you might be uh, construed as uh, being an eccentric should you ever have to use that round for self-defense. Um, but that's, you know, six to one, half dozen to the other. I don't know that I would really explain myself in that situation other than I picked a gun up and shot this guy because I was just trying to kill me. Um, 
But when it comes down to using uh, ammunition for either self-defense or for um, gathering game, the reality is there's nothing as easy to work with if you're going to cast your own, and there's nothing as effective as lead um, in an affordable range for making bullets. Um, it, it just it is the perfect you know thing to make a bullet out of. That's why it's been the traditional source for so long. Um, one of the things that nobody really talks about much, unless they kind of dig into ballistics deeply, is something called ballistic coefficient. Ballistic coefficient is the ability of an object to fly, uh, and it is has more of an effect on downrange and downrange energy really than muzzle velocity, which is the number everybody looks at, because you have a certain velocity when that round comes out of the muzzle, and over time, wind resistance, the energy fall off, all of these things result in the, the velocity dropping. So when we look at a muzzle velocity from a, a rifle, and we look at the velocity of that round at 200 yards, we'll see a big drop in velocity. You also see a drop in tra trajectory. But what people don't realize is you could put a little extra powder in there and push that to a maximum load and get an extra 100 feet per second out of it, and you'll have very little difference at 200 yards. Because, But if we change the ballistic coefficient so that that bullet has a higher BC, a higher ballistic coefficient, it's going to fly more effectively, and that would be a better way to increase the range and downrange energy of the bullet uh, than it would be to try to just eke out a few more feet per second. All right. Now the problem with when we go from something like, let's say we go from lead to an all-copper bullet, which Barnes makes them, they're called the X, and for certain applications like big game hunting with certain understanding about reducing your range, um, they're outstanding because they're tough and they stay together and they'll bull through an elk without kind of fragmenting and coming apart the way some lead-designed uh, jacketed bullets will. Um But when we reduce the weight of the bullet relative to its shape, we reduce its ballistic coefficient. So the best way I can explain it to you is this. We take two baseballs. They look exactly the same. They're the same dimensions. They're actually, we buy two of them from the store. They're the exact same brand. Everything about them is the same. If I take a big drill, like a half-inch drill, and I drill a hole, at a, kind of like a, a cross in the one baseball, and I take out a big chunk of the core, And it's still, and I, you know, I seal the holes back up, and it just weighs less than the other baseball. And I give you each baseball. Aerodynamically, they're the same, but when you throw them, you're going to throw the heavier one further because it's going to carry more energy through with it. And the lighter I make something, the harder it is for you to throw it. In other words, if I gave you a, a big ball bearing and a walnut, about the same size each. Even though the walnut's nowhere near as aerodynamic as the ball bearing, it's close enough that they should be, you should be able to throw them a relative same distance, but you can probably chunk that ball bearing really far and that light walnut is going to lose its energy, shed its energy much more quickly, and you'd be lucky to throw it more than maybe 15 yards. You'd be lucky to throw it 15 yards, honestly. If there's a headwind, it might go behind you. So when we take just about anything else we're going to work with, To make a bullet that's affordable, we're going to go lighter than lead. We reduce our ballistic coefficient. Mythbusters did, is a silver bullet more deadly than a lead bullet? And they said absolutely not. It is lighter. Silver's lighter than lead. A little bit, but enough that it matters. So, you know, silver bullet was the werewolf thing, but they only want to know, was there any validity to it at all that it would be more lethal other than silver killing werewolves? And the, and the answer was no. So, you can do it. 
But anything else you're going to use is either going to be more expensive than lead or harder to work than lead and is probably going to be less effective than lead. So it just doesn't make sense to do. A little bit of a long answer, but I wanted people to understand other than just saying, no, don't do it. Um, now, that said, the Barnes X Bullets, they're solid copper. Uh, again, for some big game applications, they're an outstanding uh, bullet. But what you'll notice is that when you buy them as a component, they come with their own load data, and you have to reduce your load and reduce your velocity to load them effectively. So it does reduce energy transfer, and it does reduce range. So why would you want it? Well, because solid copper is going to stay together. And they put a big X in it, so you get kind of this mushrooming piece of copper with a solid hunk of copper behind it. But this is why I prefer the Nosler partition uh, bullets from Nosler. Uh, they have that encapsulated lead inside very thick copper, and then thin copper that allows that lead at the end to mushroom. It's like a pill within a pill. So that backside of that bullet stays together, and it just drives whatever's left of that mushroom through. To me, they are, as far as affordable bullets for the hand loader, the best thing you can put your hands on is a nozzle or partition. Uh, all this plastic tip stuff, the Hornady SSTs and all, I've loaded them, I've used them. Uh, but I have, when it comes down to death in the field, death doesn't come in degrees, and everything I've ever put a nozzle or partition through the lungs of died. All right, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is David from Alabama. Uh, my doctor's asked me to cut back on some different things for my heart, and one of the things he recommended was canola oil. But a couple of call-in shows ago, you had a guy from Canada that talked about canola being all around him, and you discussed how uh, the Roundup-ready stuff works its way into the canola oil itself. I was wondering if you could pass on some references so we could do some more research on that. Thank you. I don't have any actual studies that you can look up for residual roundup in canola oil. But what I'll tell you is this. When you spray anything onto a plant, um, it takes it up into its, its, its system. Because if it, once there's water and moisture and runoff and it's in the soil and it's in the root system and some of the stuff gets taken in through the leaves, this is why we can use, let's say, a foliar-style uh, plant food, which we don't even have to put on the ground. We can spray the leaves of the plant and the plant will take it in. Anything that goes on a plant goes into the plant. Uh, Roundup is not biodegradable. Um, Monsanto used to claim it was. It was proven to be uh, fallacious, so that means it's false. And that means that it doesn't break down. It, it sticks around for a long time. So it goes into the plant, and it doesn't break down. So to believe that some of it doesn't end up in, in any pr product of that plant, to me, is just foolish. Now, can I say, you know, Caltech did this? I don't know. I haven't even looked. Because as soon as I understood what was going on, as soon as I understood they were taking this, this, uh, this toxin, spraying these plants with it directly, and then feeding it to me, I stopped eating it. So, I understand your doctor's recommendation of canola oil, because on its own, without any of the conspiracy, it's rapeseed, or they're going to kill us. No. Right? Canola itself is a pretty decent oil as far as plant-based oils go. Uh, you can get organic canola oil, which means it's not going to be GMO, and you can use, still use canola oil. Uh, but I would tell you why. Why use canola oil when there's a much better healthy oil for you? Olive oil. Uh, in all of your cooking that requires oil, I would use olive oil. 
for your you know your medical concerns and for everybody else so that they don't have them one day. Uh, olive oil is probably the most healthy oil there is in the world. So why I'm going to turn to something that's been sprayed with a pesticide or a herbicide? I don't have a reason to do that. Um, about the only time we don't use olive oil is the very rare times that we deep fry things. And when we deep fry things, we use either lard or we use peanut oil. And that's it. And those are the only um, oils that I bring into my home. And uh, we get all of our other, you know, fats from animal sources. And your doctor's going to tell you that's going to kill you. And, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I believe that the best we can do is to eat like our ancestors did. If we go back just 500 years and then go back from 500 years all the way back, we have a hell of a lot less grain and a whole, whole lot less, you know, the, the carbohydrate buildup to excess. We're going to live on fruits, vegetables, and meats. And oils that are easy to extract. It's difficult. If you grew a backyard full of canola and then tried to turn it into oil, it's a difficult process to do at home. You want to make olive oil? Anybody can make olive oil. That's why it was around in the time of Jesus Christ and way before him. It's been with us that long because it's a readily accessible food to humans in our niche in the biosphere. So, uh, can I, again, can I point to a Caltech study or something like that on, on a ground up residue? I can't. But I bet you I'm going to say this. Anybody that can, please post it in the show notes. Check in a day or two. I guarantee you there's studies that it's there for. Even if there aren't, I ain't eat it. I am not eating anything that's been intentionally sprayed with Roundup and then tried to be fed to me. Just not doing it. It's beyond the GMO. Okay? The GMO's bad enough. So I got the genetically modified gene in there. I don't want that. I know I eat some genetically modified food, folks. Because I don't eat 100% organic. I do the best I can. I know that there's corn in damn near everything that comes off the shelf. I know sometimes I'm eating this anyway. But the stuff that I can easily control and easily admit, that's what I'm going to do. And that's where I'm not like a health nut. I'm like, I'm not a health freak. I'm not trying to live to be 120. Have you seen people when they're 109? They're always like, they look so beautiful. No, they don't. Right? I don't need, I don't need to hang out that long. But I also don't need to do anything that's easily avoidable that would harm me. A perfect example is fluoride in my water. I have a filter system from Berkey to get the fluoride out of my water. I had another system before that to get the fluoride out of my water. I don't want fluoride in my water. If I'm really thirsty and at a friend's house and the only thing he has is tap water, well, I drink a glass of tap water. Of course. So all things, again, in moderation is what I try to talk about. And when it comes to oils for your heart, Look to olive oil, look to, to uh, you know, deep, deep, deep ocean fishes. These are the things. Look to, um, what's the other one? Flax. These are the ways to get the good, uh, the good fats and the good oils into your system. Canola, again, if it's organic, I'm fine with it, but I just, you get so much more with olive oil. Right, even just not even extra virgin, but just plain old olive oil. As far as flavor, as far as quality, as far as cooking, it, everything's better. So why do I want to use this inert oil that's been genetically modified and sprayed with a herbicide twice? By the way, they spray it once right as it starts to come up, and once somewhere down the line, and then you know they say, "Oh, it's okay to harvest." Well, if you trust them, fine. I don't. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is John in Salt Lake. I've got a solar panel question for you. Um, my wife and I are interested in putting solar panels on our house 
However, we do not have much money to invest in a whole system. I understand you probably need uh, ten, twenty, or even thirty thousand dollars to do it right to get a, a mediocre or moderate system in place with battery backups, inverters, and and enough solar panels to produce electricity. Uh, we only have maybe two to three thousand um, dollars to play with in this area, which probably wouldn't get us started very much. So here's my question: I was uh, just thinking about the possibility of buying solar panels, as many as we could afford and then tying them directly back into the electrical grid and produce a surplus that the electrical company pays us for, um, and then hopefully over time increasing our solar panels and um, to the point where we could eventually uh, build a, you know, inverters and battery backups and so on. But in the meantime, be getting money back on our investment by directly putting electricity back into the system. Now, the rest of our house would be using energy from the grid directly and not utilizing the solar panels, but we would be uh, getting money from the electrical company from the solar panels that are producing uh, electricity. Anyway, I I just wonder what your thought was. Uh, Again, our dilemma is we just have a small amount of money. We would like to get started somehow. Do you think this is feasible, or should we approach it in a different way? So thanks for your input and uh, for your show. Take care. Well, rest assured that your your situation is a common one. There's plenty of people that would like to do a 2K or 4K grid-tied system with battery backup and can't afford to do it uh, or can't, at this point, allocate that. But they could afford to do it, but there's too many other things that they have to give up. And... I think that you know we're kind of in the latter category. We'll, uh, but we'll change that when we move. I just couldn't see doing it here when I always knew we were going to get rid of this place, and I always knew if something really bad happened, we were going to abandon it. So we've kind of been in your same situation. So here's let's look at a couple things. Let's first of all look at your concept of setting up just basically what would be what you're talking about doing is a grid tie only system, and you could do that you know with with uh, you know 500 watts. Of solar, which it could be, you know, I could that could be two 250 watt panels, you know, or it could be five 100 watt panels. It's up to you how you want to do that, and different panels have different efficient efficiency ratings and all. It's not really that hard to do. Um, in fact, there's now panels that have built in inverters that will take that energy. Basically, you hook it straight up to the grid, and it's one time and done. And anytime you want to expand it, you buy another panel and just hook it up and kind of put it into the, the, the chain link of all the other panels. And that's fine, but don't get real excited about your, your meter running backwards. Uh, it's probably not going to happen, especially when you start talking about like a $2,000, $3,000 budget. You know, what are you going to put up there? Uh, uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood a half kilowatt, you know, 500 watts at that rate. Even if over time you build it up to a full kilowatt, you know, most people are using so much more than that um, on a daily basis, especially with heating and cooling. I mean, those are heating, cooling, and heating hot water. Those are your three big ones. You'd be amazed at how little draw a few light bulbs really are. If you have a meter where you can watch it run, try this. Just try it one day. Shut off your heater, right? Shut off your air conditioner. Shut off your refrigerator. And if you have a chest freezer, shut that off too, so that none of those are running. In fact, I tell you what, leave your house the way it normally is first. Go outside, check your meter, see how it's running. All right, so a few lights on here and there, that type of thing. 
Computer on, if it's always on, leave it on, what have you. So then go outside, watch that meter run. Then come inside, shut off your, your refrigerator, chest freezer if you have one. Um, use your circuit breaker maybe, turn off the, the uh, hot water heater and uh, your air conditioner or, he or heater. You know, And even if you have like gas heat, you have electricity to run the fans and everything. Shut all that off. Turn on every freaking light in your house and go outside watch your meter. It'll barely move, comparatively speaking. Especially if your refrigerator was in a, a cycle where the compressor was running, your chest freezer was there, the air conditioner was on. Look at it when it's running. You'll be amazed. So you're just not going to produce enough power to go backwards on the meter. You will save money. It'll take you probably seven years to recover it all. Uh, it's about the payback time for good, high-efficiency solar panels right now um, if you do the work yourself. Put them up there and maybe just have an electrician do the fire, fire wire in. Um, how would I do this if I were you with that budget? I would, the first thing I would do was I, I would allocate a few hundred dollars and I would build a battery backup system with two marine-grade batteries wired together, uh, sticking with 12 volts of output, to a good solid 750-watt uh, inverter uh, with charge controller, And uh, a battery, electric battery charger, it's a typical plug-in-the-wall one. And I started, I built backup battery. That'd be the first thing. I could plug a few devices in. I've got a backup. Put it in a ro rolling, rubber-made toolbox type thing with a handle on it so you can move it around. You could build that for a couple hundred dollars. And then, you know, you don't even need the charge controller because the, the battery charger is going to have that capability. Then I would go ahead and I would build your grid tie Uh, solar panels. I would try to avoid using the ones with the built-in inverters, and I would see if I could wire my two-battery battery backup system as my battery backup in between the, ch you know, so once the batteries are charged, then the charge is going to go over to the grid. What's that going to do? That's going to, like, not give you a tremendous amount of backup. You're not going to wire those batteries directly into your house, but you're going to be able to go over there and disconnect them and roll them around and use them as a backup system, And they're going to be deriving their charge from solar activity. You know, and then you can keep building out that solar system and you can keep expanding your battery system. And I always say this, you build that little system with a couple panels and a couple batteries, you've taught yourself everything you need to know to, 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 to put together a huge system. All it is is scale at that point. That's it. More and more and more. More batteries, more panels. So then you give yourself an expansion capability with backup. And eventually the rolling little backup box becomes a bank of batteries that are stay put and they're wired into your home. Maybe not into every circuit. Your backup fail and you get an electrician for this, right? I need the, this inverter to power these systems and only these systems. And I need a, you know, a bypass switch or something put in. And you get your electrician to do that. You do all the rest of the work yourself. And I think you'd be surprised at what you could do for $3,000. I bet you could get around a half a kilowatt to three quarters of a kilowatt up onto the roof with straight grid tie for that, if you'll do the work yourself. All right, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, I, I've missed a couple shows here lately, so I'm sorry if you've already heard about this and or mentioned it, but the show on the History Channel that's been airing lately called Apocalypse PA. I saw the first two episodes last night, I think. Um, and as I understand it, it's a pilot, and if it, if it does well, they're going to turn it into a series. But basically a guy living on a farm with his family trying to be self-sufficient. So far he's built a wood-slash-manure-burning car and uh, a still and a few other things. Uh, 
you know, made his own black powder and bought an 1800 revolver. And he's, he's definitely got the prepper mindset. What I like about it is that he's not being presented as an idiot or a crazy person. Um, they're actually letting him explain himself, and, and he's, uh, you know, he's got some good skills and he's got some good ideas. Um, thought maybe you might want to check that out. Uh, hopefully it'll become a series. It'll be something we can all learn from. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Well, I have heard of the show, but uh, very recently, might be that I heard of it after the call actually came in, because this call is from a few weeks ago. Um, I, I run a pretty big backlog on the call, so I will get to your calls, though. Don't worry if you've called in. Um, but I got an email from a listener like a week ago saying, hey, have you ever heard of this show? And honest to God, like 15 minutes before I got the email, I had been watching the History Channel and saw an ad for it, and I'd set the DVR to record two episodes of it. I've only gotten around to watching one episode so far, um, but it seems like a pretty good show. The episode I watched, it was about this truck, this wood-burning truck, and the, he has like, a, I don't know if it's a teenage boy or maybe a kid that's in his early 20s, but he's got this young young boy that lives at home with him still. He's got a girlfriend, and uh, I think he's probably in his early 20s or something like that, but he could be a teen. Either way, it doesn't matter. Uh, he's explaining to his girlfriend... Well, we can have the truck, and it's this ugly-looking pickup truck with this big, you know, steam engine-looking... It's not a steam engine, but it's a wood gas fire, but it's what it makes you think of as, like, one of the old steam engines that ran the ships in the 1800s sitting up in the back of this ugly, beat jalopy truck. And he's like, well, Dad said we can have the truck this weekend if I can figure out how to make it run on manure. And, you know, they have their whole dialogue, and obviously this young girl's maybe not as... Uh, not as accepting as the kid is, and the kid's not as into it as the dad is, but he's he's giving it the old college try, and uh, they eventually get the truck to run on manure. I mean, they pull it off, and it's it's all things like the caller talked about and like that. It's it's what can we do with what we have? How can we, if this wasn't here, if we couldn't just go to the convenience store and buy a battery, how would we make this work? And I think it's an awesome show, and I do hope he gets enough people watching it uh, to turn it into a series. I, I think a lot of times shows like this, they don't advertise them enough. As soon as I saw it, I'm like, I'd watch that. As soon as I watch it, I'm like, this show's good. And they don't present him to be a kook or maybe a little bit eccentric, but not like he's nuts or anything. And uh, I think we can learn a lot more from something like this than things like The Colony, which if you guys remember, this second season of The Colony, I talked about it for like three episodes and I stopped talking about it. Occasionally I still get questions, will I ever finish up my review of the second season? No, it was a terrible show. It made me want to shoot myself in the face with a shotgun. It was that bad. It was almost like they looked at the first season and went, we can do better. And everybody's like, yeah, you can do better. And they went, the people that we had last time were too smart. And they weren't very smart. But that's it was almost like they, they did too well. we got to find people that are completely incompetent, that will completely screw everything up, that absolutely will not learn, and will make people blood shoot out of their eyes. Couldn't watch. It was too much stupidity. This Apocalypse PA, I don't know if I like the name. I really don't know if I like the name. Because I think the name, from a marketing standpoint is going to turn some people off who would really like the show. I think bush hippies would like this show. I think permaculturists would like this show. I think there's so many people that would love this show. And even if even if you called it Survival Farm PA or something, I think it would be better. But Apocalypse sounds like you know the end of the world stuff. And that's not what this guy's about at all. He's about, well, he, I think he'd like our site, SaveOurSkills.com. I really do. He's about, hey, this is all the stuff people used to know how to do, and we forgot how to do it. We're losing these skills. We're losing this knowledge. It needs to be preserved. 
And that's exactly what Save Our Skills is about. So um, I, I like the show. You guys might want to check it out. Definitely set the DVR if you have that option. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, buddy of mine was hard up the other day and uh, wanted to sell me a rifle combo, and I bought a Rossi Trifecta. I got a one single gun, but I got a two forty three barrel, a twenty two barrel, and a twenty gauge barrel. And they all fit in a nice convenient little case that you can fit under the seat of just about any car. And ammo for all three. Just thought that might be something you'd want to talk about. I appreciate it. And uh, on a side note, I did hear your MERS radio going off the other day on a show. Thought that was kind of comical. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I know about those little Rossi combo guns, and I like them. I don't own any. I was uh, kind of brought into that world by the gun that inspired Rossi to come out with their combos, which was NEF H&R, and I'm a handy rifle enthusiast. I've got a, handy rifle, a couple handy rifle frames and different barrels for them. Um, that uh, let's see, I've got a 4570, a 223, a 306, a 308, 44 Magnum, 357 Magnum, a uh, 12 gauge barrel, a 20 gauge barrel, a 28 gauge barrel, a 16 gauge barrel, all that you know go on just a couple frames. And Rossi's done kind of the same thing. There's some things I like about the Rossi over the NNF, NEF H&Rs. Uh, now, NEF and HR is now owned by Marlin, and I think they've done a good job of making that platform even better and improving their barrel program as well. Uh, but one of the things I don't like about NEF H&R is you can't have the combo you just described because the rimfire frame uh, is designed a little bit differently than the centerfire frame. So with the H&R, you have to have one frame for rimfire, one frame for everything else. So no 17 HMR, no 17 H2, no uh, 22 Magnum, no 22 long rifle with a center fire. And it's just because the firing pin's set different, and Rossi set up their barrels to accommodate that. So that's the big thing. They're also a little bit more affordable. H&Rs uh, used to be one of the most affordable rifles in the world. They're still very uh, affordable, but they've jacked the price up a little bit over time. That's part of the Marlin merger as far as I'm concerned, um, where Rossi has kind of held their price point a little better over the last five years. So there's definitely a price advantage, especially if you want three barrels. Now, comparing the two uh, platforms, the other thing that I kind of think is an advantage for NEF that Rossi talked about and never did is, like this guy said, he's got these three barrels in one frame and one case, and they all go together. If you want a Rossi with uh, a certain combination of, of caliber and gauge, they even have a 50 caliber muzzle loader and things like that, you have to buy the, the, the trifecta or the matched pair from a person like this guy did or from a store. You can't get new barrels for the Rossi. You know, um, with NEF you can. Now the thing about NEF, it's not like the Thompson Center uh, break action where they're milled to such tight tolerances. He's buying off the shelf barrel and strap it on. To get a new barrel for NEF rifles and shotguns, you have to mail your receiver to H and R NEF Marlin. They will fit the barrels and mail it back to you. But once you have it, swapping the barrels out with both weapons is pretty much the same. You remove a screw, yank the forearm open, open it, the barrel comes right out, drop the new barrel in, lock, forearm back on, add a screw. takes less time to do than it did for me to explain it. So both of them have a lot of flexibility that way. And honestly, the Rossies are so affordable um, that if you bought 
different combinations, even buying new guns, it's it's not real expensive, and you've got a lot of flexibility there. But the barrels on both are not interchangeable. In other words, if I go out and buy a Rossi in .44 Magnum, and then I buy a Rossi in .306, I can't take the barrel off of each frame and swap them. It might work, but it might not. Because the t- these guns are not built to the tolerances that allow for that. Each barrel's breech face is custom milled to the frame that it's put on. And I've seen people try to do it and it worked, and I've seen people try to do it, and it was bad enough they didn't even try to pull the trigger because you could literally wiggle the barrel. But I like both of them. Um, and again, I love the fact that I can get a Rossi pair with uh, a rimfire. So I can have a rimfire. And what I'd really like to see, I don't know if Rossi makes this... Uh, this grouping, I'd love to see uh, a Rossi with 22, uh, 44 Magnum, and uh, 20 gauge. I think that would be an awesome little combination for anybody that's east of the Mississippi River and ain't going to take that long a shot ever anyway. That'll handle anything you'll ever need to do east of the Mississippi. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, Steve from Minnesota. Uh, question for you. I know you just did a show about silver, but uh, at what price uh, would you say silver has gone into a bubble? You know, when when what price? Uh, just in your opinion, would you quit buying it at? I just bought a bunch of uh, twenty. I think I paid twenty eight dollars about a hundred silver eagles, my first silver investment. But uh, just kind of curious about that. And then also, uh, I was wondering if you've ever seen the movie Fight Club. I just if you haven't, I think you'd dig a lot of the lines that are in there. It seems, seems pretty survivalist. Uh, but, uh, just curious. Uh, thank you. Bye. You know, I would love to say silver is a good buy up till price X. And at price X, it's reached its top and don't buy it anymore. And at price, you know, Y, it's, it's gone over and it's time to sell and take profits because it's going to drop back down. Silver is a volatile commodity. It's more volatile than gold. It jumps up and down uh, more rapidly, and that's why some people shy away from it. That's why some people gravitate to it. That volatility allows for the trader to actually do well on silver's moves, you know, to buy low, sell high, buy low, sell high, keep doing it over and over again. Um, I am much more of a long-term person on silver uh, than, than other people are. There's a few things that we have to look at. One, to ever define a bubble... It's not just about price. It is about price relative to everything else that's causing, what's causing the price. For instance, why did we have a real estate bubble? Was it because prices on houses were too high? No, it's because prices on houses had gone up simply because the supply of money available to purchase them with had gone up. So in other words, we had banks with lapsed lending. It was easier to get qualified. We had liars loans. We had the President of the United States who wants to blame the banks. And this is George Bush, by the way, uh, and Bill Clinton. Both did this, forcing people like Freddie and Fannie to make loans they knew were bad, uh, encouraging them to do so. We had members of Congress. So, you know, it would spread the blame all over the place. But the reality is what caused the prices to skyrocket for all those years? Too much money being given to people that couldn't pay it back. So that underlying fundamental meant that that prices on houses didn't go up simply because there was a greater demand for them in reality. There were more buyers, but it wasn't because more people wanted a house than ever before. It was because more people could buy a house than ever before. So that created a bubble simply because sooner or later that money was unsustainable. So there was an unsustainable reason for the increase. Silver did this in 82 
when the Hunt brothers tried to corner the silver market, pushing the price to 60 bucks. And everybody's talked about, I people, people shut up about it like the last 10 years. But for, I'd say, 20 years after 1982, 92, right up early 2000, 18 years, somewhere in there, silver is so far off, it's all-time high, blah, blah, blah. And nobody knew, nobody thought it was going to go back to, it was trading for 4 to $6 through the 80s after this. Well, again, that was unsustainable. It was an illegal market maneuver, trying to put as much money as they could into holding silver, and as soon as authorities stepped in and said, dude, you can't do that. You can't do that. It corrected itself. So two examples of bubbles. Underlying fundamentals that aren't sustainable. Here's what we know about silver right now. Silver is doing exactly the opposite of what a technical analysis says it should. The dollar strengthened on all these economic news in, in Europe about Ireland and stuff like that. The dollar's gotten stronger. As crappy as the dollar is as an investment, it's better than anything else out there right now. Generally speaking, when the dollar strengthens, silver falls. Because it's about an inflation ratio. Your dollars simply buy more or less silver based on their strength. Gold came a little bit off, but not much. Silver went up. Stocks went down. Now, they just kind of rebounded, which I expected. But as that dollar strengthened, stocks did what they were supposed to do. They pulled back. Silver didn't. It went up a little bit more. That means that as the, the the common wisdom would be that we would see a correction in silver pricing, it still went up. Now, there's not anybody out there dropping tons of money into the market to give people to, to buy silver. In fact, some of the biggest financial uh, companies in the world are in a short position on silver right now. They're trying to, to, to bet on silver going down. J.P. Morgan Chase is huge on short on silver right now. That concerns me because they do manipulate a lot of things. But even that hasn't worked. They're getting close to being called out on a lot of their short plays. So silver's holding or rising when it should be falling. That means that there are underlying realities about what the investor sees in silver right now that are sustaining it. So what that means is as soon as the fundamentals switch to where silver should go up, it'll probably go up faster than it, than it than we normally would see it. So I think silver's still a good buy. I'm looking at the delta between silver and gold, and it's still bigger than it was for years and years when silver was 6 to 12 bucks and gold was about 300 So gold is an indicator, says silver has headroom. If gold corrects, silver has less correction to do with itself. Watch gold. If it starts to correct, that tells you silver could correct next. Um, but overall, I'm still a strong on a buy. Am I as strong on a buy as when silver was $14? No. When silver was $14, I was taking any extra cash that I had laying around. I was buying silver dimes, quarters, uh, pre-64 stuff. I was buying eagles. I was buying rounds. I was buying bars. If I could get a decent deal on it, if I could get it for a few pennies under spot off eBay, whatever it was, if I could get my hands on it, I was stocking up on it. Now, buy a little bit here and a little bit there. If I had none, you bought 100 ounces. Great. No problem. Um, I think you did fine. You do want to watch things. Hopefully you're holding silver long. This is a time to be long on silver right now. And what I mean by that is you've got a long time horizon. You're, you're, going, you're hedging against the devaluation of the dollar long term. And silver's been a good play for that for 100 years. It'll continue to be a good play for that. Could you lose some money? If you go right now and pay $28 an ounce for silver, 
Six months from now, if you need the money back, could we have silver down significantly? 30, 40%? We could. It could be up 30, 40%. I don't know. But a bubble, again, it's not about the price itself, what's causing it. So you have to look peripherally. And right now, I don't see anything causing it. We could very well be sitting at $28 silver for a different reason right now, and I might call that a bubble. But I don't see it right now. Even when the dollar strengthens, it doesn't fall. That's my technical analysis. Best I can do for you. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Brian from Las Vegas, and I have a question about sheet mulching. I actually live in Henderson, Nevada, which is about uh, a 15-minute drive for me to get down to the strip. Um, my wife and I got a sustainable landscaper to do a design for us, which is basically the closest I can get to a permaculture design in this area. Um, along In the backyard... Which is where we're gonna. I'm trying to do the whole permaculture thing. I have an almond, a peach, um, dwarf pomegranate, lemon, and apple tree going in the back back there, along with a couple raised beds and an herb spiral. And my question about sheet mulching is, I was thinking that because my soil is so bad, I'd like to put sheet mulching around the area where the trees are going to be, so hopefully later on I can um, I can do some gilding around the trees. It's we're we're trying not to go into any kind of debt to do this. We want to pay cash for it, so it's going to take me about us about nine to ten months to save money to do this. And so I'm thinking that, you know, with this amount of time, hopefully the sheet mulch will have a chance to work itself into the ground and help improve the soil. I actually bought a five dollar soil test kit from a local um, garden center here, and um, the pH level in my soil was pretty high, um, was high, it was 8.0, the um, nitrogen level was very low, the potash level was very low, and phosphorus was actually high. So um, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on that. Um, you know, I found a couple found a couple of sites talking about it, but I'm also kind of thinking about just going to the one that's with, or going with the sheet mulching that's in Guy's Garden, which is, you know, a cardboard, newspaper, um, soil amendments, um, says bulk organic matter and compost manure in a top layer of, like, straw or leaves or something like that. Um, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, this is going to be a good idea. So last I was saying is how long do you think it's going to take? And I also talked to the owner of the company, and he said, you know, if we're planning on doing it in three to six months, then it's probably not a good idea. But since we're planning on doing the project in about a year, I think, um, I don't know, I think it will be a, a good idea on what to do. Okay, there's a lot going on there. Let me see what I can do on each part of it. First of all, your $5 soil test kits, uh, when it comes to pH readings, they're usually fairly accurate. Um, they are okay with reading potassium and potash, so uh, or potassium and uh, phosphorus. They are lousy with nitrogen. So whether or not you have nitrogen, so you probably are pretty nitrogen poor, just based on where you are and your description of the land. Um, but you may not be as bad off as you think you are. The only way you're going to get a reliable profile of your soil is to put together a little a little sampling of it based on several different areas of where you're supposed to be, mixing it together, putting a little vial, and sending it off to like an agricultural extension or a university and having a proper test done. That'll cost you about 20 bucks, probably well worth it. Uh, because that'll give you an accurate reading. Those little $5 test kits aren't worth five bucks, just to be completely honest with you. pH is the one place, the pH is so easy to determine, you probably do have that really high pH. And that's going to be a problem, uh, long term without doing the type of thing you're talking about doing. So pH is something you're going to need to buffer. 
Um, but it probably won't be that. You've got this alkali dead soil, basically, so we need to put life into it. Your sheet mulching will do that. How long will it take? Uh, it depends on how much and where. You can grow stuff there tomorrow morning. Uh, you put in a raised bed, and you put in four to six inches of soil that you manufacture from a combination of stuff like peat moss and compost and, and good, healthy topsoil and organic matter, And it doesn't matter what's underneath it. It's going to, the plants are going to put 90% of their roots into that, that soil strata that you've created, that six inches of raised bed. So that's not an issue at all. Improving the soil to where you can start to gild around your trees and grow in it at least a year. The more you do, the thicker the layer, the more diversity you bring in, the more organic uh, stuff you bring in, the more moist you keep the area... Uh, with like drip irrigation or something like that, and the finer you chop the organic matter, as long as it's not, like let's say I wouldn't want to do this, I wouldn't want to shred up tons and tons of uh, oak leaves to the exact same size, put them all in there together, because they're going to form almost a mat, and you're not going to get an aerobic breakdown, you're going to get an anaerobic breakdown, which is much slower. So you need different forms of organic matter, rough mulch, mulch fine mulch, etc., mixed with lots of moisture. Do that, and a year from now, you have pretty decent soil. It's going to take years to really build up that soil to what nature's capable of. But you can start growing in it tomorrow, so it's a combination of things. Some things I can think of that will help you here. If it's a large piece of property, and if you have access to um, leaves, branches, anything you can shred... Spending four or five hundred dollars on a good quality chipper shredder is probably a great idea. There is no need for you to go out there and get these really expensive, huge ones that can take like a four inch uh, branch and chop it up. That's firewood, you know, or it's left to, to rot on the ground as whole mulch. But stuff that can handle, you know, your half inch branches and uh, maybe a little bit three quarter inch branches and down. Good solid shredder uh, from um, DeWalt makes good ones. Uh, DR makes good ones. Uh, there's a couple different brands out there that are pretty solid. Um, any of them are going to work for you. And you might be surprised, like you may not have a big forest behind you or anything like that, but if you just drove around neighborhoods and picked up bunches of stuff, you might be surprised at how much you could shred on your own. And that will give you tons and tons of organic matter. And anything that you can grow that's a fast-growing plant that's going to die every year can go in there. Corn stalks, you know, whatever it is. Probably not going to grow any corn anytime soon, but you get my point. Amaranth may do okay for you, especially if you provide some, some topsoil to help it out. And that produces these huge stalks, lots of organic matter, comfrey, anything like that. Uh, so what you need to start doing is bring as much as you can in, Be self-sufficient with it as you can, so consider a chip or shredder. Start growing things that will grow in poor soil and produce lots of organic matter. Start growing your own now. Chop and drop, whatever you can. And you use your fine mulches in the areas that you want to cultivate as soon as possible. Use your heavier, rough mulches. I'm talking whole branches just cut up in two or three pieces, thrown into the ground. You know, bunches of anything. Just throw it there in the areas that's a long-term project. So, thinking for permaculture, thinking your zones, your zone one, two, three, four, five. The further out you are and the further your cultivation of an area is, the rougher your mulch can be. Your areas you want to work on soon in the next year, 
That's where to apply, you know, your large amounts of, of compost and manure, your large amounts of compost itself, your large amounts of chopped heavy mulch, sheeting and things like that. Cardboard newspaper, great idea. If there's a lot of stuff there growing. If the, if the ground's barren, you can just throw it on top of it. Um, what you're doing with cardboard and newspaper is anything growing there you don't want to grow, you're going to deprive it of light long enough so that by the time the cardboard and the newspaper goes away, um, it's dead. And that way only what you plant there or what seed naturally lands there is going to grow. It doesn't get rid of all weeds, but it sure as hell helps. Um, so there you go. That's the best I can do for it. Was it a good idea? It's the best idea you could do. It is the, it is the way to go. The thing is to think about how to do it logistically so you can plant the things you want to do first as soon as possible. Uh, you got timeline there anyway, so that doesn't matter, but you still want to think that way. Don't try to do every square inch of this yard with the exact same urgency. Put your, your best material, your most expensive, best prepared material in the areas you want to do first. And use rougher materials, less expensive materials further out. That's one big thing. But you got to keep this stuff moist. You can put down all the mulch you want. If it's dry, it takes forever to break down. It just does. The, the humid, moist, warm condition that encourages fungal growth is what you're looking for. If three to four months into this project, you can go out and pull up clumps of your, um, your mulch, rough or fine, and it sticks together, and it's got little white, stringy-looking growths on it and maybe a little fung little mushrooms here and there but that white stringy fungal mesh you've got it licked at that point that fungi is the teeth of the soil it will break down the biggest baddest pieces of material into high quality soil you just keep that going you got to have the moisture and again plan it logistically so that you're not trying to do a hundred if you try to turn a whole even a small half acre yard you try to sheet mulch the whole thing the same way It's going to be very expensive and very, very labor-intensive. If you zone it out and put your best materials in Zone 1, your second best in Zone 2, by the time you're in Zone 3, you're at rough mulching, it's going to be a lot quicker, a lot more affordable, and you'll be able to stage out your plan a lot more uh, effectively. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Radar on the forum. Um, question comes I've never heard come up before on the uh, nuclear survival skills. Um, in case scenario of someone were to, uh, some terrorist were to smuggle a suitcase nuke into one of the downtown cities and set it off. Um, other than survival commonality, what would be the special preparations that would be needed? Um, is this something that would be more of a show topic or is it going to kind of be covered in a short, uh, dissertation on, on some of the basics um obviously uh Creston kearney's book would be of use but um, i'm just wondering what your what your thoughts would be on it thank you much enjoy the show thanks bye to be completely honest it's not something that i sit around worrying about an awful lot um and i'll, I'll give you some reasons why I'll also tell you what you can do One, have your bug out plan, evacuation plan, have it well thought out, well prepared, have multiple routes for evacuation, and be ready to go. Because this is a primary thing you're going to do. Um, the second thing is, make sure you have potassium iodine tablets. If you ever end up in a radioactive exposure, it's one of the best things you can do 
uh, to limit your exposure. Now, if you want to do underground shelters and things like that, I guess you can. Um, but for a suit, you know, let's not talk about World War III. Let's talk about a suitcase nuke, and let's get a little bit real on what the capabilities of a suitcase nuke are. Uh, our government, who wants to take away every bit of, uh, of liberty we seem to have left and every bit of privacy we have left, the next thing they're going to want to do is put cameras in your pants, uh, is what it's, I know that's an overreach, but it's what it's fe- starting to feel like. Would like you to believe that if a suitcase nuke goes off somewhere in a big city in America, the whole world ends the next day. That, that every human being on, on, in, in the United States of America's skin just falls off and we turn into like some kind of space creature or something. The reality is a suitcase nuke, Something of that size um, is something I sure as hell don't want to go off, but if it does, it ain't as bad as they're telling you. It just isn't. Um, if we look at the, the output of something like that, well, most of them are looking at a fraction of a kiloton. We're talking about 190 tons of TNT, which is a big explosion. Let's not, let's not belittle that, but uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were like 16, 19 kilotons, uh, the first nuclear weapons ever invented and deployed. And uh, they killed a lot of people, but you also have to remember that they were dropped in the middle of a huge city and uh, how many people had houses made out of paper and wood that died from fire and um, radioactive fallout and things like that. We look down at something that we typically fit into a suitcase and we see a much smaller device. So if it goes off in downtown Dallas and you're in the middle of downtown Dallas, are you dead? Probably. If you're on the outskirts and it's dead center, probably not. Do you have nuclear fallout danger at that point? Yes. If you were sitting up in Louisville, Texas, which is about 25 miles north of uh, downtown Dallas and a suitcase nuke went off, uh, unless prevailing winds were perfect, you probably have little to no risk, especially if you just get up and leave after it happens. So the suitcase nuke threat is very specific to a very small uh, area uh, around which it would it would be capable of going off. In fact, there's a tool I'll give you in the show notes that somebody built. You can go look at like a 15 kiloton from Little Boy or I think it's 21 kiloton from Fat Man, which are the two we dropped in uh, Hiroshima and, and other larger nuclear weapons. And it's on Google Maps, and it shows you the radiation of thermal damage. And put put a city in you're familiar with the geography of, put the smallest 15 kiloton weapon in there, and uh, look at how small the damage really is. That's mass. If you're in that, I don't want to you know belittle this, but if you're in that zone, it's awful. But in our minds, it's so much bigger than it really is. Now take that 15 kiloton radius and cut it in half. And that's what maybe a six kiloton tactical suitcase nuke could do. So it's just not the thing that I think about every day because I don't work. Now, if I worked in downtown Dallas, it might be a little bit different of the story. Or if I worked in the middle of Manhattan, it might be a little bit different of the story. But the big thing I want you to take away from my answer here is even if they pulled off a couple of these things going off in a couple cities, it is not the end of the world as we know it. The United States does not fall apart overnight. We don't all turn into radioactive uh, zombies the next day. They're just limited in what their yield really is. Now, they do have, I mean, tactically, why were they developed? Well, because if you can get them into a downtown area, you can wipe out everything there, communications, utilities, you name it. Um, And they probably, uh, in use by uh, nations at war with each other, would be a go-between full-scale nuclear. They would be a, a tactically deployed weapon. There's also some small nuclear weapons that would fit into something maybe the size of a footlocker that can get up to, you know, um, six kilotons. 
Okay, so that's half of what you would see in the Google Maps till. Remember, the true suitcase weapon is a fraction of one kiloton. So I, I actually misstated that. It's much smaller than that, even half. But the biggest thing that would be portable, that somebody could smuggle around in the back of a truck or something like that effectively, would probably be one of these like uh, 120-millimeter shells. And you're, you're, you're looking at a couple hundred pounds, something that would fit in a foot locker. And that's half of uh, Hiroshima or Nagasaki, a, th a third of it, really. Um, and and that's, that's worst case scenario. Most likely, again, you're talking, you're talking small tactical. It's a weapon of fear, far more than a weapon of damage. It's like people being afraid of, of, of snake bite. You know, of rattlesnakes. Oh, there's rattlesnakes in Texas. As though you're going to walk down the streets of Dallas and step on a rattlesnake. Now, there are places where you could. But even when you're there, the odds that it's going to happen to you are so infinitely low. If it does, it's, it's really bad. But... Even if it happens, your odds are higher that you'll survive than you'll die. You know, unless you're bit directly in the jugular vein because you picked the snake up and shoved it on your neck. Well, that would be the equivalent of you have to be standing, uh, uh, you know, less than, than, a, than, a, than a tenth of a mile away from where the thing goes off. Your troubles are over, you're dead. Don't let these type of things scare you. Full-scale nuclear war, totally different scenario. But one or two suitcase nukes, unless you're, it, it, the, the odds that you'll be run over by a 10 ton Mack truck are much higher. Just leave it at that. Let's go ahead and take another one. Now, I'll also see if I can dig up. There's an AP article that was out a while ago about how the whole thing's really kind of a myth in the first place and that there's probably not any of these things out there in true suitcase nukes. There are the smaller tactical weapons that could be deployed, but. The concept of one being the size of the phone on your, you know, your desk in an office is is definitely overblown. Um, so the the odds of them even existing in that true briefcase size thing uh, is pretty daggone low. So I'll, I'll give you a link to that and a link to this little target map. And again, I think it'd be a good exercise if you have any fear at all about nuclear uh, nuclear uh, war, nuclear detonations. Check this fallout map or the, the detonation map out. I think you'll be surprised at how small the geographies really are compared to what they're huge, but compared to what we have in our head. Uh, let's take the next call. Hey, Jack, this is John in West Virginia. It's something I would like to spread around a little bit. It's the fact that uh, your 20-pound propane cylinders that they have at all the convenience stores, uh, you are not getting 20 pounds of propane you are getting 15 pounds of propane and paying a large premium for less propane than what you actually think you're getting just uh i feel victim of that and found out the hard way thank you Uh, John's absolutely correct. Um, the way we get our propane cylinders refilled, we go down to a local U-Haul, and they actually fill it up and charge you for what they put in there. And it's much more affordable overall that way. It costs less to fill an empty one than to buy one from the, the supermarket like that in the exchanges. Um, and you get your full amount, and you only pay for what they put in there. Um, let's talk a little bit about how stupid um, supermarket-type chains and box stores are with this stuff. I remember one time... I needed a tank refilled. It was empty. I don't let my tanks sit empty for any length of time whatsoever. I want them all full. I uh, couldn't get down to U-Haul for a while because it's a little bit further of a drive. I said, to hell with it. I'll go ahead and do one of these exchanges. And my 
tank was kind of old and nasty. And I'm like, if I get a nice new tank, that'll be worth doing it alone. So I go there, and like, there's no one outside to help me. So I go inside the store with my empty, empty cylinder, and I go to the customer service counter, and the, the girl freaks out. Oh, you can't bring those in here. Why not? Oh, it could blow up. I just drove down the street with it in my car. I cook on it in my backyard every... Look, I need to exchange this. I need to pay for it. I need somebody to come out there and exchange one for me. Um, and, you know, that experience just taught me that these people are idiots. And probably the reason they do 15 pounds of propane is a safety factor so that they won't get overfilled like they're going to pop like a balloon or something. Propane cylinders are probably one of the most safe things in the world. You have to really go out of your way to have any kind of a danger or a problem with propane. Even at the U-Haul one time, I had this young kid filling it up, and it was right when they changed them, and they have different valves now to help prevent overfilling. And he was like, yeah, I, we can't we can't fill the old style. I had to throw a tank away. Nobody would fill it anymore. I said, why not? He goes, because uh, it could overfill, and if that happens, we all die. And I'm like, you put it on a scale. You know what you're putting in there? We filled these damn things for 25, 50 years. And then I, stopped, I was like, I'm coming down on this kid. And he's just doing what he's told. And I just said, you know what, that's fine. But son, don't say stupid things like we all die. I mean, let's use a little bit of common sense here. Sure, if you turn it on full blast and uh, you don't have any regulator in your filling hoses at all and you walk away from it and ignore it, eventually it could rupture. But the hose is going to rupture before the freaking tank does. You know, come on, let's use some common sense. So another reason to avoid buying from supermarkets is to avoid idiocy. I mean, absolute idiocy and inconvenience in doing it. Find either, like I said, most U-Hauls do this, or you'll be able to find somewhere around you where you take your cylinders in, they hook up a hose, and they fill them up. You're going to get what you paid for, and it's going to cost you less money. John, thanks for bringing that up. It's something I've known, but I don't think I've ever said on the show, so I really appreciate you calling in with that. Uh, folks, those are words of wisdom from John. Don't get ripped off on your propane. Let's take the next question. Hey, Jack, I got a few uh, comments for you. Uh, show 550 was awesome. That was a great show. Um, and if uh, you're ever feeling down or you feel like you're not making a difference, you need to re-listen to that show because you are making a, a huge impact on people's lives, and uh, people are really getting a lot out of your show. Um, I was at the at the store doing my coffee canning, and uh, I do the same with batteries. I've been getting a bit better supply of batteries, and I just noticed that it seems like recently the batteries on the shelf life had went from like two years to uh, about ten. So uh, and they're the same price as they've been for the for a while. So that is able to uh, kind of extend my uh, supply of batteries because they'll last longer. So that's uh, let everybody know that. And also, um, <coughs> debt free. The only debt I have is my mortgage, and I've been paying extra on that. And uh, I called my bank and I and I asked him, "Well, I've been paying extra. I want to know when I'll pay this off." And they sent me an amortized uh, schedule, and they said, "You know, if you've been paying the extra three hundred dollars every month." So we'll just act like you've been doing that. You'll do that for for the uh, future, and uh, you'll get a schedule of when you actually pay it off. So it's kind of good to see and motivating to see when you'll pay it off as opposed to just writing a check and knowing it'll be sooner rather than later. Um, keep up the good work, Jack. Thank you. So I put that call on for a couple reasons. One is um, I want to ask anybody out there, I've not really noticed this myself, all of a sudden batteries having much later expiration dates. We have so many dadgone batteries, and we just kind of keep throwing the new ones to the back of the stack. Um, I really haven't been paying attention. Um, anybody else notice this? And the bigger question is, is it real? 
Um, did they all of a sudden start making better batteries, or did they just change the expiration date on them to make people feel better? Um, is, it, is it real? Or has it always been that way, and have we just kind of been you know, misled and tried to been convinced to buy new batteries before we needed to? I don't know. Um, so if you have any knowledge about the extended battery life or extended uh, duration of battery storage life um, in common batteries we buy in the store every day, let us know in the show notes. Please don't. When I say something like that, please don't email me. Jack, I wanted to tell you. No, don't do that. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Look up the episode, comment in the show notes so that everybody can see it. If you want to stay anonymous, you don't have to create an account or anything to do this. Put down Joe or John or whatever. Throw an email in there like fake email at fakeemail.com. I don't care. And leave the website thing blank. You don't have to fill that out. And make your comment. Um, I think that would be a much better way to do this with the comments. I, I get emails all the time, and I'm like, go post that on the blog. That's great information, but I'm not going to revisit every topic on the show. Let's get it out there. Let's get it discussed. Maybe somebody else can add to it. Maybe somebody else can build to it. So I wanted to kind of throw out you know, an impetus here. Comment on the blog with stuff like that. If you disagree with me, as long as you're not a jerk to me, I won't be a jerk to you. Um, we can disagree. You can have new information. You, a lot of times you guys post something like, wow, I didn't know that. I learned something from the audience. So don't be afraid to disagree with me. Let's just all be civil with each other and we're all cool. Um, next, I wanted to kind of point out as we're wrapping up this last call of the day here, um, how simple the things are that this guy's doing, really. Copy canning, paid off his debt, few hundred dollars a month extra on the mortgage, storing up some batteries. But you know what? Those little bitty simple things just start you on a path toward independence, and it just grows and it grows and it grows. Remember the old cartoons where somebody would be at the top of the hill with a little bitty snowball the size of a marble, push it down the hill, and it would just keep building up and get faster and faster and bigger and bigger as it goes? That's exactly how self-sufficiency and independence go. You start out with just these little simple things, and you realize you realize this when you're like halfway down the hill, and you've built up the momentum, and you're just kicking ass with it all. The debt's gone. You got this. You got this. You, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for that. I'm prepared, and I feel good. And I feel good about myself, and I know I'm going to be able to take care of my family. I know I'm going to be able to take care of myself, and I've got it under control, and I'm free. And you're only halfway down the hill. You start to realize all of it's simple. All of it's little things adding up all, over time. All of it is eating that elephant one bite at a time, and one day you look and there's an elephant skeleton laying there. You've eaten the whole thing. You know, and hopefully there's a couple MasterCards laying on the rib bones. And those things are gone forever. So I wanted to, uh, to, to point that out. And uh, kind of the last thing I wanted to say about this was, when you hear somebody like this, don't you want to be like them too? Don't you want to do what they're doing? And don't you realize that if they can do it, you can do it? I mean, that's huge. Oh, and there was one more thing I wanted to comment. I almost forgot. I sure wish you would have told us how long uh, it was going to take you to pay your house off with an extra $300 a month. I'll bet you it's probably earth-shattering how many years it takes off a 30-year mortgage. It's probably something insane like 15 or 17 years less. It probably is that much. I don't think people realize it. I mean, let's look at it this way. There's no interest there because it's all principal. So $300 a month extra is $3,600 a year times 10 years is $36,000. If you have a $100,000 house in 10 years, that's an extra 36% of the total cost of your home. And all the other interest you don't pay. And I don't think people realize how much interest you pay on a mortgage. 
I'm going to finish up with this thought for you, and this is why your debt has to go. This is why even though a mortgage is the one debt I'm okay with, you've got to pay it off early. You've got to plan to buy less than you can afford. Less than you can afford, not more than you can afford. And here's why. I could not make this up if I tried. Mortgage is made up of two words, mort and gauge. Mort is in mortality, is in death. Gauge is from the Old English. It means to grip. Death grip. Mortgage is to be under the grip of death. Now, I don't invent the rules of language. How it actually ended up being that way, I have a pretty good idea, but I don't know who decided that it was. But if you want to get out from under the de death grip of debt... You pay it off. You make good on your contract. You do it early. You mitigate the interest. Instead of ending up under the grip of death, you end up under an umbrella of liberty. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.